Today's uh, title is called More Than Saved, and you might be wondering what in the world is this man talking about? How can we be more than saved? What's better than that? Well, I hope to explain that. We wonder sometimes how God works and why he does what he does. How, How come he chose Israel? Uh, and through that little nation, uh, to, they would be the vessel that he would use to reveal himself, his person, his purpose, his ways, and the Messiah to the world. But we know, again, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. The Lord God chose Israel, that time, that place in in history, uh, to use their language, their culture, their custom, uh, their way of life, all those things that he would use to declare himself to us. And metaphors and illustrations and pictures and symbolisms, all that would be a way for him to describe to us who he is. And the marriage of a man and woman, I think, is one of the big ones that he uses from that time. God chose the ancient Jewish wedding custom and wedding ceremony to reveal to us things about himself and about our relationship to him and his relationship to us. Now, before I go any further, I have to confess something. This morning, I'm going to confess that my wife knows about what I'm going to say. But my confession is that I'm, I'm married twice. Standing before you today... I stand involved in not one, but two marriages at the same time. In fact, my bride encourages me to spend more time in my second marriage than our first marriage, because our second marriage blesses our first. Now, a non-believer might hear me say that and say, wait a minute, two marriages? Where do I sign up? And it's blessed and it's good. The wife is good with it. I'm married to my present wife, my bride. We've been together 50 years, married 47 years, and to my second marriage, 40 years. But to make it even stranger, in my first marriage, I'm the groom. In my second marriage, I'm the blessing bride. (laughs) Now you already guess what I'm talking about, but if you haven't, let me explain. Pam and I were married on September 20th, 1975, and we said our official I do's about 2.20 in the afternoon in Hillsburg, California. I was born again in the summer of 1959 when I was nine years old at the Santa Rosa Bible Church. Uh, Pastor uh, Graves was the senior pastor at the time. But I started living in my marriage relationship with the Lord Jesus in August 1982 up in Lake Wildwood in Penn Valley. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there are many types, many images, uh, many symbolisms and and words that God uses uh, to describe those who are born again in relationship to who he is. And among those are these, uh, we're called sheep, flock, children, friends, disciples, church, ambassadors, soldiers, we're athletes, we're farmers, we're slaves, we're servants, we're saints, and the list goes on. 
Now, all of those are good. All those are biblical. They're accurate. They show something of who Jesus is to us and who we are to him. There's none better than the other. They all give insight for us. But there's one metaphor that helps, I think, to describe the intimate relationship we have with our Lord and that he wants with us. Again, uh, it doesn't negate anything I've already said about being a saint or or an ambassador or those things. But I think it shows how deep the commitment is from him to us and how deep our commitment ought to be from us to him. When we are saved, when a man or woman comes to salvation through Jesus Christ, we're more than saved. We have entered into a new life, yes, but know this, we've also entered into a marriage relationship with Jesus Christ as our groom. And that fact alone ought to have a profound effect in our lives personally and in those we have uh, contact with corporately. The problem is, that's the truth. But many Christians don't know that. They don't know this wonderful ongoing relationship that we have with our Lord. Some have forgotten that fact. And many are satisfied with only part of the relationship that we have with Christ that is being saved. Uh, What I would call the wedding day. Which is excellent. I'm not downplaying that because I wouldn't have eternity were it not for that. But brothers and sisters, uh, we are more than saved. The Bible is a book of history. It's a book of poetry. It's a book of wisdom and and prophecy. Uh, We're told that what we have in our hands and in our our, our digital devices, it's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness for the man or woman and the things that God has for us. It's all the Word of God, and it's written to men and women of all time, and it chronicles the love relationship of God. To people. In the Old Testament, it chronicles the love relationship of the Lord to his wife, Israel. He made a covenant with them, and we, you read it, you know it. They broke that covenant several times, but he never did. In the New Testament, it tells us of a new marriage relationship, a new covenant for both Jews and Gentiles, a marriage between the church, who's the bride, and Jesus, who's the groom. So, open our Bibles, John chapter 14, and if you're able, let's stand as we read the word. John chapter 14, verse 1, we read, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. So, Father, as we read your words, Jesus, words that you have spoken, that we get to read, we get to meditate and grow from, I pray, God, that uh, you, Holy Spirit, would be at work in a mighty way, through this vessel to bless the church. 
Be glorified, we pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So please be seated. So every one of us, men and women, who are here today, who are born again, we have this brighter relationship with Jesus. He's our groom. In fact, Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, just so you know, a, a couple times ago when I was here, we lost power and it became dark and I couldn't read anything. And then somebody came to my rescue and gave me their phone with the light on that help. But ever since then, everything that's in here, I have printed here in bold type. <laughs> I'm trying to protect. So, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2, I wish you would bear with me a, a little foolishness. Uh, do bear with me, for I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you a pure virgin in Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will lead you astray from a sincere, listen, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he says there that we've been betrothed to Christ, and in that betrothal there needs to be a sincere and a... Uh, devotion, pure devotion to Christ. Then in Romans 7, 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, so that you may belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 32, we read these words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her, that he might, what? Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. And then verse 32, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The most intimate human relationship that God has designed for us is the relationship between a man and a wife in the marriage covenant. That is why the enemy today, 24-7, full on, is coming against anything that has to do with God's design. Because to destroy, to distort, to pervert, to reinvent biblical marriage between a man and woman is key to having billions of people misunderstand the wonderful intentions of God towards us and our relationship with Him. So this morning we're going to look at the ancient Jewish wedding marriage customs, and we don't have time to go to every detail, but I want to give us enough biblical history and, 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 and Bible knowledge that we'd be able to tie these things together and see that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching and saying things that their minds would identify with. First, there's the selection of the bride. The bride had to be selected. In fact, in 19, uh, Luke 19.10, we read, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. That tells us that He's selecting somebody. He's selecting someone. 
There had to be a selection of the bride in those days. The bride was chosen by the father. The bride was chosen by the father of the groom. Uh, never the bride, never the bride choosing the groom. Now somebody might say, wait a minute. Pastor John, that's pretty sexist. That's pretty barbaric. That's a weird attitude and a statement towards women. Well, if you're saying that to yourself, I just say this, grow up and get over yourself. Because um, you need to wait and get the whole deal because that, if that offends you, there's more. <laughs> now the father would act on the best interests of his son as he's seeking a bride for his son. And the son, if old enough, would be involved in the selection, but not all the time. And we see this illustrated for us in Genesis 24 uh, and 2 through 9, when Abraham sends his trusted servant to go and bring back for his uh, son Isaac a bride. Now in the New Testament, Jesus says this in John 17, 12, while I was with them, he's speaking, praying to the father. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. In John 18, 9, this was to fulfill the word that had been spoken of those whom you have given me. I have lost none. Now consider our being chosen. Jesus has said this in John 15, 16, he makes it plain and clear. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now, one commentator said this, that if you're gentle, by, uh, gentile, <laughs> if you're Gentile by birth, and most of us here today are Gentiles, we've been chosen once. But if you're a Jewish believer, you've been chosen twice. But regardless, once or twice, we were both chosen by the same love. Now, many times the bride never has seen her husband and would only find out about her husband through her father or through that uh, father's servant. Now, we have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit to reveal the groom to us. In John 16, 8, and we read, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will glorify me and take what is mine and declare it to you. So he makes it clear that the Holy Spirit's job, one of his jobs for us as the church is to declare, to reveal Jesus to us. This work is going on right now. It's going on this morning. It was go it's going on now. And it'll continue to go on as the Holy Spirit works in our life. Now in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, speaking about our faith, we are told this, that it, our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That our faith may be found, uh, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But listen, he says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. You believe in him. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So again, we've been chosen. We've been chosen by a groom which we literally have not seen physically with our eyes. So how do we see this groom? Again, the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit, through the eyes of faith.
Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. What? The evidence of things not seen. In 1 John 3.2, beloved, we're told, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Wow. It hasn't been revealed what we shall be, but we know this, when he is revealed, now we get glimpses of this revelation in our life, in our walk with him, but that day's coming. When he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God has chosen us. Why? Because he loves us. Now we might wonder, because some of us know ourselves pretty good. Why would the king of kings choose me? This is a question that the Shulamite woman was asking in the Song of Songs. And she speaks of, her, of herself in a very humble way. In chapter 2, verse 1, she says this, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. And then her king responds to that expression, as a lily among brambles, so my love is among the young women. You see, we might not think much of ourselves, the world might not think much of ourselves, but God looks at us as common folks, normal folks. I wore my little sheep clothes today. We're just sheep. But compared to those who are not here, it's like a lily placed amongst weeds. God has chosen you because he loves us. And he loves us because he's chosen to. His selection of us is a mystery, I agree, but it's full of grace and it's full of wonder. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. What manner of love is that? We get to know and grow in that love every day that we have and eternity afterwards. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So, there was a selection. The next part in the process for the Jewish custom was a price. A price had to be paid. Once the bride is selected, a price was negotiated. And then somebody said, what do you mean? Now women are a slave, they're on a block, and, and somebody's negotiating a price for them? Further barbarism, further you're acting like a silverback ape, Mr. Lucas. No, it's, it's so wonderful, it's so beautiful, the picture that it paints. The bride was purchased, yes, but no. The father of the groom paid the father of the bride a certain sum. And that was to help practically cover the father of the bride for the uh, absence of that daughter in the house and her participation in the family. But more to the point, that price showed just how much the groom valued the bride. What the groom was able and wanted to give to the bride showed her the value that she had in the groom. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
2 Peter 2, 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master or Lord who bought them. I've been bought. Now, he thinks he got a good deal. And with time, maybe it'll get better. But whatever he paid, it's, I'm happy for the purchase. For them, money, silver, gold, goats, cattle, sheep, other things would be brought together and, and, and they would be given to the Jewish bride in evidence of the value the bride had to the groom. Please don't forget that. We have the account of Jacob in the Old Testament. Remember, he, he was tricked and he had to work 14 years to receive his bride, Rachel. So what was the purchase price for us? You know it. What did it cost Jesus to purchase us? Acts 20, 28. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders says this, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. We know that Jesus, and when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's wrestling with what, what's about to happen. He's wrestling with what he's about to do, the price he's going to pay for us. But we read that for the joy set before him, he submitted to the Father's will and he completed 100% completely paying the price for us. In Luke chapter 22, 19 through 20, at the Last Supper, the Last Supper here on earth, Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. And then he says, take this cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So the price that he paid for us wasn't silver or gold or a thousand cattle, or $400,000 in stocks in Tesla. Any of those things that we would put some material value in. The price was his life, his body, his blood. And as we yield to that fact, as we accept that fact, uh, that we no longer belong to ourselves, I mean, really, I have to be reminded but we remind ourselves we're no longer belong to us that we've been bought, we've been purchased with a price. As we start to do that, we start to enter into more into the abundant life that he has for us. Because the point is this, and Jesus has given all of him to us. So how can we not give all of us to him? So there's a seat searching, there's a price paid, there's this betrothal that begins now. The selection happens, the price is agreed upon, and now they're going into the betrothal uh, part of this whole ceremony, this whole cultural thing they had for marriage. She was at this point almost married. The two had not come together to consummate the marriage yet. She's betrothed. Now this was a sticky point. You know the Bible, you know Joseph of Mary. They were betrothed, but she, they hadn't come together as man and wife, and yet she's found with a, a baby, and Joseph scratching his head. He loved her so much, he wanted to do the righteous thing for her. But that's what was going on there. They hadn't even had the official ceremony, the official feast, and yet they were as good as marriage. Now in our day, 
The term would be engaged. But the Jewish betrothal is deeper than engagement. It's a deeper commitment. It's a covenant. The Jewish word for this stage of that the bride and groom would be entering in here is called a kedushin. It literally means a sanctification or a holiness or to be set apart. A sanctification or a holiness to be set apart. Covenants in Bible times, you know covenants, they, they were serious things. Uh, they were sealed and they were sealed and legally binding. And it wasn't easily broken. Like today, we can break our covenants, our contracts pretty easy, but not then. At this stage of the ceremony, here's what would happen. A marriage contract would be presented. It was presented to the father of the bride. And in that contract, the bride would be hearing this. It spelled out the price of the bride and the other provisions that the groom agreed to, to uh, care for her and to purchase her. The groom promised to honor her and support her and maintain this bride in truth, provide for her in food and clothing and, and practical things. And at that point, uh, they, from that point on, they would go away from there as husband and wife. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 and 2, he says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel divine jealousy for you, since I have betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's what's happening then. That's what's happened to us. And our betrothal is the time of one where we are giving ourselves over uh, to become one. And the word even means, uh, it's like if you were a carpenter, you're taking all this raw lumber and you're putting it all together to build something, to fashion something. In Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, there's a searching of price. This, this contract has been given. And, and this is the betrothal time is almost ready to begin. I say almost because we come to the bride. At this point, the consent of the bride was needed. Even though she'd been selected, a price was agreed upon, and she sees what's offered there, she's able to hear what's, what's going on in this exchange, the prospective, the prospective bride did not have to agree. We see uh, this agreement happening in Genesis 24 again, where Rebecca was sought by the servant to bring back to Isaac. And, and uh, the father says to Rebecca, will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. She could have said, no, I won't go. And then Rebecca wouldn't have been the wife to Isaac. Judaism teaches that a marriage can only take place by mutual consent. Unless you've watched Fiddler on the Roof. See, it's a mutual receiving of what the groom is offering. God never puts anybody in a headlock, never forces anybody to accept him. There's a seeking, there, there's a price paid, there's, we, we, we have this all presented to us in the gospel, seeking, we see what he did for us, we see what's before us, and yet a person can say, yeah, Lord, or nah, I don't think so. I'll have none of that. But if we accept, we're told this in Romans 10, 9 and 10, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In John 1, 13, excuse me, 11 and 13, he came to his own, speaking about Jesus, he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But to all who received him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God, who were not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Then John 3, 16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have almost everlasting life. No. Everlasting. Amen. There's some who would like to teach differently. But we've either been purchased or we haven't been purchased. He's either paid the whole price or he hasn't paid the whole price. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus gives the invitation for all to come to him. The invitation is, is open. But we know that all don't come to him. Over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is constantly calling people to return, to come, to, to reason together. And he invites them, but not all will come. In Matthew 7, 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter there are many. So at this point in, in this ceremony, the bride could say no. Or she could, she could say, I do. And if she said, I do, then we move on to this, what seals the covenant, which is the cup of the covenant. When the terms of the betrothal was accepted, a cup of wine then was shared between the groom and the bride. This is a symbol, uh, you know, in, in the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of blessing. And when entering the covenant and they were sealing the covenant with wine, they would say this, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God and King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. So the bride and groom would share from the same cup, drink of the, from the same cup, thus symbolizing now their oneness. There will be a second cup, but that second cup wouldn't happen until some months later, which we'll get to. But be reminded that wine in Jewish thought and custom was a symbol of joy. And for the Jew, marriage was one of the highest joys on earth. Also, wine is a symbol of blood. The marriage covenant was a blood covenant in the eyes of God. Two lives becoming one. When Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples, he had a cup and he took it and he shared with them this cup. He says, we read, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the remissions of sins. Now keep this in mind. They, Jesus and his disciples, had had a, a couple more Passovers before this one we read of here. They had shared in this cup before, but this night that we read of on, in the Bible, in Matthew, something, a transaction takes place. A transaction that brings into a new intimate relationship. They were becoming one like they had never come, become before. In fact, it was the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32, and I'll read that. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. When we take a cup of wine together as the body of Christ, we're told to do this in remembrance of him. So I just want to encourage you, the next time you have communion, you participate in communion, and you, you take that juice, do it in remembrance of him. And when you do it in remembrance of him, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Now, two cups of wine were used in the Jewish wedding ceremony. The second cup, the bride and groom would take, partake in sometime later. We, the church are the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. Today, we drink this cup. Without the Lord's physical presence, when we have communion, he's not here. But one day, that song, um, I Only Can Imagine, one day, we're going to stand there, maybe kneel there, maybe fall on our face like the song says, and we're going to be in his presence. But the beautiful thing is, is that in Matthew 26, 29, he says, drink from it. This is the first cup. For it is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many of the, for the emissions of sin. And then he says in verse 29, yet I tell you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. That second cup for the church is coming. So let's move to the last part. Eddie said I had two hours. <laughs> the last part is the departure of the groom. Once the marriage covenant was sealed with the cup being shared by the groom and the bride, after that was done, the groom would leave. He would go to his father's house. You know the story, and we read about it in John 14. He would go to his father's house to do what? to prepare a place for his bride. For when he receives his bride, they would have a place together. And we read that, John 14 again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Excuse me, if it were not so, I, I would have told you. I will come again and take you to myself. Listen, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He left his church, but he's coming back. That promise was made over 2,000 years ago, and it was as good as gold then and as good as gold today. No matter how long it takes for him to come, his return is near. For the bride in ancient Israel, she knew for certain that her groom would return. Why? Because she knew what her groom did for her. She knew the value that the groom placed in her. She had gone through being selected and the, the price being paid and the, the contract being presented and the cup being shared. She knew all that had been done for her and she knew he was coming. She didn't know the exact hour. She didn't know the day, but she waited prepared. She waited separated. She waited consecrated unto her groom until his return. 
Only the Father knew when that time would come. And Jesus tells us the same thing. It was the Father who would tell the groom, okay, the room looks good, it's suitable, now go get your bride. We read in Mark 13, 32, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, stay awake. So the bride would wait. And then that night would come. And usually it was at night. She would hear the sound of shofars or trumpets. They would break the silence of the night. And then there would be the torches coming down the street and would illuminate the roads. And there would be on the way a procession. And they'd be making a way from the father's house to the bride's house. This was their custom. This is what would happen. She would hear the words, behold, the bridegroom is coming to go and go out and meet him. Then she would go out of her house, she would get into a litter, and she would be carried, listen, she would be carried from her house to the father's house. Does that remind you of something? Begins with an R, like overture. She'd be carried from her house to the father's house. But a cute little side note in her custom, because they had so much history, as she's entering the litter and she's being carried there to the father, and she would have a veil. But the bride, the groom was allowed to go over and he would take a peek just to make sure that that was the proper woman. Because they remember what happened to Jacob. <laughs> that, that was, that, I thought that was cute. <laughs> And also I want us, want us to be reminded that in the Lord's eyes there's no such thing as an ugly bride. We would know we're beautiful because we know the love he has for us, the price he's paid for us. In 1 Thessalonians 4 15 through 17 For this I declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, and we shall always be with the Lord. And he goes on to say, therefore comfort one another with these words. There's so much more to it but there's a great marriage feast coming for us. But let me bring it to a conclusion here. Number one is this. We get out of any relationship what we put in to that relationship. What we put into something is true in sports, it's true in business, it's true in hobby, it's true in the marriage. Know this, Jesus is all in. He's 100% in to this relationship that he has with us. The question I have to ask myself Am I? How committed am I to my Lord? How committed am I to Him and His glory with His will being done in and through my life? His kingdom come. His will being done. How committed am I? You see, we the church now, we have a responsibility between this time that we wait and the time that we're there. And our responsibility is to be faithful to the groom. Just to be faithful to the groom. Number two, we are more than saved. I've said that more than once during this time together. But it's important 
Because after the wedding, there is what's called the marriage. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year by year. And that relationship should grow. How enjoyable would it be for the groom and for the bride if that relationship was just the wedding day? And what I mean by that is as great and as wonderful as the wedding day is, how would it be if after that day the bride and groom woke up the next morning and they said, wow, that was a great, great wedding, wasn't it? And he looked at his bride and said, honey, you are so beautiful. She looks at him and she says, you are my dashing, handsome young man. And they talk about, you know, the, the ceremony, the vows that they made, and the gifts, and the guests, and the and music, and the dancing. And they said, wasn't that just one of the most precious things you've ever experienced? And then they say to each other, but here's the deal. From now on, we're married. Let's just live together. You know, you go your, your way, I'll go my way. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. We'll come together for pleasure once in a while. Or, or we'll come together if maybe if there's decisions to be made or maybe something important comes up and one of us can't face it alone. We'll do that, okay? Now I give that illustration because often that's how we treat our groom. We say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Keep in touch. We say, I'll give you a call if and when I need you. And then we go on our way. We're saved. We go on our way, knowing we're saved. Then something comes up. We realize that we made a big mistake. We got into something that's way over our head. And we come running back to Jesus. I love you. Don't oh, forget me. And he's been waiting. And then we're right where we need to be. Right at his side. Embraced by him. And all is well for time until we forget again. Number three. I only have, only have 20 of these closing comments. <laughs> As we live with this truth and the realization that we are more than saved, it ought to have an impact not only in our lives personally, but again in our lives corporately. Especially in the body of Christ, and then, of course, outside the body of Christ. There should be noted difference in us because of the relationship we have with Jesus. Our second marriage, if we're married today, should greatly benefit our present marriage. Our second marriage should greatly benefit our work, our home, our community. And then lastly... For those who are here today who maybe aren't married, they're young and looking forward to that, you don't get off. Because if you're born again, you have a spouse. You have a spouse. His name is Jesus. You're betrothed to him. So you, uh, young ones, need to live as a married man or a married woman to your groom in faithfulness and holiness and commitment and to love. And that goes for all of us until that time when we hear that trumpet. Oh, and we're gone. Amen? Amen? So Father God, you speak of this great marriage feast in Revelation chapter 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Something that we get to look forward to and is wonderful and is beautiful and as amazing as our salvation is 
that supper's coming. And that's going to blow our minds. So Lord, we just want to be faithful to whatever you've called us individually and corporately. Whether we are presently married or not, we still want to be a faithful bride to our groom. Be glorified in our lives, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.